Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. Today, the issue is tax incentives for community development. A case can be made that incentives are applied unfairly, that poor neighborhoods languish while the more affluent profit. Is that unfair? Some say yes, some say no. Here to talk about it is Jack Grohn, the editor of McPherson, an independent journalism startup in St. Louis. He's been writing on the issue, focusing on incentives awarded to the Chase Park Plaza, which by itself has benefited more than some entire neighborhoods. Jack, welcome. Nice to have you. Thanks very much. Good to be here. Before we get into the discussion, I think for the basis of better understanding, could you define for me the difference between tax abatement and TIFs, tax increment financing? Sure. Uh, tax abatement is probably the simpler one of the two to understand. And that's a case where when you have a new development in a, somewhere like St. Louis City, they simply agree the developer will agree with the city to uh, abate the taxes for a certain amount of time. So if you've got a 10-year tax abatement deal, it means that the improvements on that property that the developer is carrying out are not taxed. The, the parcel is only taxed at the pre-improved value. The um, tax incentive financing um, is a little bit more complex, but in many cases there, the uh, city strikes a deal with the developer to collect money from the project, but then that money is funneled back into a fund, which then goes to support the improvements that are associated with that project. Okay. That's a, a clear understanding of what these two things are all about. Now, let's talk about the chase, which you've been writing about. Why did you choose the chase for your analysis? Right. Um, the Chase is a, obviously a very interesting property, and it's iconic. You know, it's one of those properties that people all over St. Louis recognize. Um, it's had you know, people have had their weddings, birthdays, you know, their bar mitzvahs, you know, all kinds of events there over the years. And it's it's gone. It's it's had its ups and downs, and it really epitomizes, I think, in many ways, the ups and downs that the city of St. Louis has had. Um, I was uh, re- doing some research. Uh, over the winter and into the spring on some of the things that were happening in the city with respect to different neighborhoods and what was going on property-wise. And I came across the fact that the Chase Park Plaza, after 35 years of tax abatement, that was both full and partial tax abatement, was actually back on the property tax rolls. So that was very striking to me. Mm-hmm. And, and to what degree uh, on the tax rolls? How much money is it generating? Well, the uh, if you look at the records that are available by the city assessor's office, the, um, the Chase Hotel the Royal Sinesta Chase Hotel, I think it's called now, and the Park Plaza Condominium Tower are together generating around $3 million in property taxes for the city each year. And that, that's based on 2017. Obviously, they employ hundreds of people at that complex, mm-hmm. and so there are additional taxes, earnings taxes, payroll taxes, and other things that the city is also collecting. You, you point out, though, in your writings that, uh, that the Chase uh, actually has gotten more in incentives and help from this uh, system, if you will, than entire neighborhoods. Just elaborate on that a little bit. Right. Um, and that really goes, I think, more to um, disparities in valuation, um, perhaps more than it does the actual incentives um, in the city. Uh, you, I, I think you've had um, folks on this show before that have discussed this, but in 2016, the city released a report on development incentives um, that was done by a consulting company called PFM. And it was really one of the first times that the city had tried to gather all the data into one place and try and get a good handle on what the incentives were that were out there, what they were valued at, which neighborhoods they had benefited, and what the impact of those incentives mm-hmm. had been in terms of property values going up, in terms of job creation, and a number of other metrics that they um, looked at. One of the reasons that I was interested in that report is that it was one of the few places where they had actually 
brought or broken down data, I should say, by neighborhood level. So it wasn't done at the level of a census block or wards or these kind of different entities where people may not know what exactly they apply Mm -hmm. to. When you break data down by neighborhoods, you make it more accessible to people. People tend to know what uh, the Central West End is. They know what the Hill is. They know what Lafayette Square is. They know what Hyde Park and the Ville are. So it makes it more accessible. And this is where it got interesting because when you look at that report, it showed you what was happening in those different neighborhoods in terms of some of the assessed values in those neighborhoods going up pretty dramatically, places like Lafayette Square and other neighborhoods uh, where the, va- the assessed valuation of all the property in that particular neighborhood, all the businesses and residences, was actually declining quite meaningfully. And in some cases, the neighborhood values were declining by a factor approaching 40% between the year 2000 and the year 2014. Mm-hmm. Um- I just lost my train of thought there with regard to the poor neighborhoods. How could tax incentives be used in in these poor neighborhoods? How how would they be uh, utilized? Well, in a lot of lower income neighborhoods, you tend to have a different type of incentive used. Mm-hmm. So um, a lot of those tend to be low income housing tax credits. Um, those have been in the news recently, of course, um, because of the uh, various points of view on those in Jefferson City. Um, But uh, that's one of the main instruments used in some of the poorer neighborhoods. In neighborhoods like the Central West End, which is a very diverse neighborhood, there are are places in the Central West End that are quite wealthy, and there are other blocks in the Central West End that are not doing so well. So it is very diverse. You get more of the tax abatement and tax increment financing used there. Is this system fair? Well, that is a very good question, and we're having a very lively debate on that in St. Louis right now. Um, and I think a lot of that goes back to the disparities that a building like the Chase Park Plaza really reveals. Because if you look at what the Park Plaza, and I'm talking only about the condominium tower now, mm-hmm. this is kind of the very tall 28-story kind of ivory-colored building on North Kings Highway. The fact that it came back onto the tax rolls in 2017 meant that for the first time, we could see what the city actually thought those condominiums were worth. So there are about, I think about... 78 condominium units in the building overall. Mm -hmm. And so I simply went through using the public data on the assessor's website and just added up what those individual condo units were worth, both what they were, the market value was according to the city, which the city calls their appraised value, and then what they were assessed at for tax purposes. And so that's what allows you to get a pretty good idea of what the city says that building is worth. Um, I think if you look at the numbers, the city said that the Park Plaza was worth around $17 million assessed value, about, uh, I think, 87 or $88 million in appraised value, and that appraised value, again, being much closer to the market value. Mm-hmm. What was interesting there was because then you could take those figures, and I realize I'm getting down into the weeds here. That's okay. That's what we want to do. But you could, you could take those um, figures from the assessor's office and compare them to the figures for the neighborhoods that were in that report that the city had issued mm-hmm. in 2016. And it's not a 100% apples-to-apples comparison. The numbers are from different years. One set of numbers is from 2014. Another set of numbers is from 2017. So you need to be a bit careful, and that's something that I pointed out in the story I wrote about this. But it did provide a basis of comparison. And so once I had the figures for the Park Plaza Tower, I went through just, I was interested to see, to see, okay, is this thing worth more than some entire neighborhoods? And I started going down the list of neighborhoods and I started counting up three, four, five, and the number kept getting bigger and bigger. And when I was finished, I realized, I checked the math on this, that 
the uh, Park Plaza condo tower just on its own, if you look at its assessed value, is worth more than 29 of the city's 79 official mm-hmm. neighborhoods. On the surface, that would seem to be unfair, as we have discussed. On the other hand, uh, just using the chase, continuing to use the chase, uh, that has really helped in a resurgence of activity in the Central West End, which, as you indicated earlier, creates more jobs, more activity, which uh, generates more tax money overall, which ultimately can be beneficial to those neighborhoods in terms of maybe better police protection or cleaner streets or lots cleaned out, vacant houses knocked down, that sort of thing. Right, right. And I think that's that's a very important point because um, when you look at the use of tax incentives in the city, and I'm referring mainly to tax abatement and TIF here, um, I think one thing since TIF really got popular in the 1990s, abatement's been around longer than that. One thing that's been missing from the equation is that it hasn't always been clear to residents all across the city how their city benefits from these agreements. Um, There hasn't always been, I mean, I I don't want to say there hasn't been transparency because the records are there, but I think that the dots haven't always been connected in that kind of way that would allow people to see, well, okay, you know, here's what we gave to a developer. What are we really getting in return? And I think that's what some of this dialogue in the city now is really trying to get at. If you talk to Mayor Lida Cruson, as we have done here on this program, and as, you know, raise the issue of the equity of all of this, she'll say, look what has come out of all of it, just as I indicated with regard to the chase. You know, that you have to sometimes wait a little bit before the full benefit is realized. That's right. And one of the nice things about the beautiful view from this studio is that you can see about probably about $100 million in abatements and tiffs along around the skyline. So you can really see, I think um, the mayor would argue that the reason you can see it is because it actually got built. Mm -hmm. And the reason it got built is because it was incentivized. And if we hadn't provided those incentives, it wouldn't have been built. Um, uh, People sometimes look at the debate around incentives as kind of a zero-sum game with the idea being that, well, if a particular neighborhood is getting something, that means that I'm not. Um, I'm not sure that that does justice to the way that these abatements work or what they truly brought to the city. But I think that people are asking very valid questions and you have people coming from very different sides of this. You have some organizations that are simply opposed to incentives overall because they think they distort the economy. You have other people opposed to incentives because they think they foster inequity in the city. Mm -hmm. Um, So these are, I guess, strange bedfellows. But um, I think it's good that we're having this debate in the city, and it's good to see the level of engagement that it, that it uh, really represents. You had seemed to indicate earlier that really the, the, the issue is one of education, letting people who are critics and who f- don't fully understand fully understand what uh, in fact is happening. That's right. That's right. And I think, um, I think the city is working um, in that direction. Mm-hmm. One of the uh, recommendations from that report in 2016 was to create a much better tracking system, a much better database mm-hmm. and model for what is actually out there. I mean, where are the in- these incentives and what kind of benefits are they generating? And we've seen the city take steps toward that. My understanding is that uh, there may be something coming out later this year that sheds more light on that um, in the St. Louis Development Corporation. So I'll be interested to see what happens there. Um, right now, we really only have part of the information. We know, for example, that TIFs and tax abatement, uh, that the, that that's, I, I'm using air quotes here, that those are costing 
um, the city almost $30 million in foregone tax revenue each year. Now, a lot of people would argue that that's not really the accurate way to describe it because that revenue would have never existed in the first place and the city couldn't give away tax revenue that it never actually had and mm-hmm. that those projects wouldn't exist if the incentives hadn't been in place. They would call that an investment in the future. I think that that's kind of the way they're thinking. We had Nicole Galloway in the state auditor, and she's looking at this very closely. $30 million is the figure she uses. That's money that uh, might have been there if, uh, if uh, we didn't have these incentives. That's right. Let's take a break. We have to do that. We're talking with Jack Roan. We're talking about tax incentives and tax equity, if you will, in the city of St. Louis. We'll come back to continue the conversation. If you'd like to be a part of it, we'd love to hear from you. Give, uh, hear from you. Give us a call at 382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Send us an email to talk at stlpublicradio.org, or if you would prefer, send us a tweet at STL on air. This is St. Louis on the air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. And welcome back as we continue our conversation on equity or lack of it in tax incentives. Jack, we're talking about the city, and that was where your emphasis has been. But this is a situation that also uh, affects the suburbs, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah and I think um, you know there are good and bad things happening, and that's what this disparity um, issue really points to. You have certain areas of St. Louis City where there is a a meaningful amount of prosperity and a critical mass that probably didn't exist 20 years ago. And you can argue whether or not the incentives were needed in order to make that happen. But what what is undeniable is that it is happening in the city. And so I think this is one of the angles that kind of gets overlooked when some of the national media write about St. Louis, when they write about our crime rate or they write about um, economic decline. Um, The fact that there is so much prosperity in the city um, is really striking. And if, there, if that critical mass really does exist, then hopefully that'll spread out to affect more parts of it. Your point about the suburbs is great, though, and especially about some of the suburbs in St. Louis County, because it's possible over the next, say, decade or so that we're going to see a lot of headlines about St. Louis as one of these comeback cities. And you all have talked about this recently with the Brookings Institution report, and St. Louis actually looking pretty good compared to some of its peer cities. What I would hope doesn't happen is that we simply trade our problems from one municipality to another mm-hmm. so that St. Louis City becomes a comeback story. But meanwhile, we're ignoring a lot of problems that may be um, getting bigger in municipalities in St. Louis County. Yeah, we have a, uh, a listener call in here saying in Crestwood, uh, for years, Crestwood refused to consider a tip for the old Crestwood Mall site. Eventually, they realized they were losing the intercommunity bidding war as that site degraded. Have we come to the point where developers will not entertain developing a site without a TIF or some other incentive to do so? Mm, that's a great question. Yeah. I think in a lot of municipalities, yes, we have. Um, in St. Louis City, I think the expectation is baked in for developers that for most all of the projects that they will get some kind of incentives. Um, the incentives that the city are offering, they are lessening. Um, there's a new apartment tower that's just getting underway in the Central West End right now, and that's actually getting less tax incentives, fewer tax incentives than a somewhat comparable, bu- comparable building that was built about 15 years earlier. Uh, some municipalities in St. Louis County, depending on their tax base and how they choose to raise their revenue, they won't play that game with the incentives. But it's hard when 
the money is sloshing around the metro area and moving from one municipality to the other. And if you're a city official in some of those places, I can understand why you think you need to go chase some of that. That building you're talking about is at King's Highway in West Pine. It's called the 100 East or something like that. Mm-hmm. I think it's a $130 million building, if mm-hmm. my numbers are correct. I believe what, so, yes. What, what are they getting in incentives? They're getting 15 years of tax abatement and some other incentives as well. The tax abatement is the main one. They're getting uh, 10 years of tax abatement at 95 and five years of abatement at 50%. Now, that 95% figure is very interesting. They're not getting 100%. And I suspect that the reason behind that is that the city wants to be able to demonstrate that even at 95%, in other words, 95% of the improvements being tax abated, that that property will still be generating more in property taxes from the day it opens than the parking lot did that used to be there. If those incentives weren't uh, weren't available to these developers, do you think that building would be going up at all? Interesting question. Um, I think that something would get built there just because of all the improvements in the Central West End, like we've been talking about at the Chase Park Plaza. But the question is, what would get built there? Mm-hmm. Um, it's quite possible that if there were no incentives there, that there would be a perfectly nice 10-story apartment building there that would be an improvement on the old parking lot and would look fine. What we're getting with this developer and this plan is a 36-story building with a unique design, I think to to uh, um, put it mildly, um, nothing that St. Louis has ever seen before. It'll certainly be striking. Not everyone likes the design. But um, it, uh, it could set a higher bar for the other future developments in the Central West End. How much of that height, that extra height, that extra bulk, that extra mass, and obviously that extra tax revenue that the city hopes to get down the road, how much of that is a result of the actual incentives that the project is being given? It's hard to say. You know, I think that there's another parking lot just uh, adjacent to it. That's the uh, the Chase parking lot at Lindell and Kings Highway, which I always thought is Maybe the most valuable piece of property in the city, if something dramatic were put there, it would be quite sensational. It would be. And I think there have been plans. I think, gosh, back in the 80s or early 90s, yeah. there was a plan for a couple of towers there, which never materialized. Um, I haven't looked at that property recently. Last time I did, I think there was uh, there were multiple interests on that property, which were preventing something from getting done. But I would expect at some point, We'll see how long this current economic expansion goes on. I would expect at some point that something pretty significant would get built there. Do we have any idea, and with all the numbers that we've had already, maybe I missed this, but do we have any idea as to how long it will take for the city to realize what was lost during the tax abatement period of with the chase? Mm. Um, I would love to look into that. Yeah. Uh, there are bits and pieces of that story out there, depending on certain financing arrangements and certain bond deals. And you get certain in, in redevelopment uh, agreements that are attached to ordinances. Um, the Chase Park Plaza has a relatively new owner, a new real estate investment trust that has come in and bought it, I think, since mm-hmm. the abatement period ended. Um, so I don't know if anyone knows for sure, but it would be a great exercise to do. Um, I'm sure someone has those numbers, and if they could get the owners to agree to have those disclosed, even in just an aggregate, um, in an aggregate kind of way, it would be very illustrative about what's actually happened and what hasn't in terms of did the city come out ahead. Uh, another question concerning the uh, the condos in, in the chase. Do the residents who live in that combos, have they now seen their property tax rate individually go up? They have, yes. Yeah. And my understanding was that uh, when they were first assessed at full value, 
in um, 2017 that some of them had issues with that, and there were actually some appeals. And appeals happen all over the city. Um, but uh, my understanding is that uh, most of those appeals were um, rejected by the city and that in the end they were all dropped. I think the city may have done some minor adjusting mm-hmm. over there, but they said, look, this is what you're going to pay. And by and large, that's what they ended up paying. I think it was in one of your stories where you mentioned that uh, one of the residents, I think at the Chase, correct me if I'm wrong, was really more interested in getting some sort of a power source for his Tesla (laughs) (laughs) than the other part of it. Yeah, and that kind of shows you what a geek I am because I also went through the building permits um, for the Chase just to see what was going on over there. And um, I realized that back in 2014 – when, of course, there were a lot of issues going on in St. Louis. Um, there was uh, one gentleman over at the Park Plaza that was having a charger outlet installed for his Tesla. Mm-hmm. Okay. That uh, that's, tells us something, I, I think. <laughs> we have Joseph on Twitter wondering, are there any strategies for raising the property values in a neighborhood without also making the cost of living there too high for current residents? Mm. That's yeah. That's yeah. A, that's another good question. Um, and we've seen, um, I think, in St. Louis, um, rising property values and any displacement that might go along with those displacement, meaning current residents that are priced out of the neighborhood and have to move. I think we've seen some isolated examples of that so far, but nothing on the scale of what you've seen in cities like San Francisco or Seattle, where some property prices have just gone through the roof. Um, it's hard to develop those neighborhoods and uh, put the investment into them and attract that private investment that you need in order to make the city viable for the long term. I mean, private investment will put the money into a project if they have a reasonable expectation that they'll be able to get their money out and hopefully turn a profit, which is reasonable for them to expect. Um, How you do that and keep property prices just the same or rents just the same is kind of that that, uh, magic... uh, formula that no one has seemed, seemed to be able to crack yet. Yeah. We have a caller. Brent is calling from St. Louis. Let's bring him in. Brent, you're on the air. Go ahead. Yes, Don. I am a city resident, and I hear a lot of gloomy prospects from people living in the county about the future of the city. Uh, and they're just looking at one aspect, and that's the population thinning. And I want to remind everybody that 50 or 60 years ago, the average home probably had five or six people. Now, it's one or two. And so, yes, we're going to have less population. I think it was 850,000. Now it's, what, 310? Um, it would be great to get those numbers up, but it's not as frightening as it sounds. All right. Do you want to comment on that, Jack? Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, you know, even if uh, no households had gone away in the city of St. Louis over the mm-hmm. last several decades, we would have seen a population loss just for the reasons that Brent mentions. You see um, older suburbs. Um, I grew up in Kirkwood. Kirkwood has fewer people than it did 50 years ago mm-hmm. just because families have gotten smaller. So that's an excellent point. Yeah. Um, is there anything out there available to the small homeowner? I mean, we're talking about big developers, and that's understandable. But uh, I've never heard of anything that the individual homeowner might tap into for some assistance. Right. I think – and it it depends really where you are in the city. And I'm not an expert in this subject, so I can't say definitively. Um, I know in the Central West End, for example, uh, the city does not give tax abatement anymore for single-family houses because the neighborhood is considered strong enough that it doesn't Mm -hmm. need that. Um, do you need tax incentives in a neighborhood like the Hill? Um, this is one of the points that the opponents of tax incentives have raised, and I think it's a very valid point. 
Um, I think in um, in some parts of the city and with some of the good work that we're seeing being done by the housing development mm-hmm. corporations um, in some areas on the south side and also on the north side, um, I think for small homeowners there, that's where they probably have a better chance of getting getting some kind of assistance. Is anything, to your knowledge, shaking in that regard? You mean in terms of yeah. more money being yeah. available? Yeah. Um, I don't know of anything off the top of my head, but just given where we are in the economic cycle right now and just given all the work that's being done in the city, there are probably neighborhoods which are candidates for revitalization now that really wouldn't have been thought of that way 10 or 20 years ago. Where do we go from here, Jack? Uh, you're not an expert, but you're more expert than I and most people, I think, given all your research. Uh, what would logically be the next steps in dealing with all of this? Well, I think, I mean, if you um, – I think uh, going back to the question that Brent asked uh, a minute ago on the phone, um, part of the uh, task is um, not being so negative about the city and, and realizing what the positive things are that are going on and realizing what's here. Um, again, there is meaningful wealth creation going on in the city right now. That has not touched all neighborhoods. It hasn't even touched most neighborhoods. But um, I think <clears throat> emphasizing that is one thing that we can do. I think another thing would be to um, – make uh, the individual members of the Board of Aldermen uh, as responsible and accountable as possible for the type of development that's going on in their wards. They have the say. Absolutely, yeah. And that may be changing. You know, that tradition of aldermanic courtesy, it it seems to be fraying more and more each year. But um, if if you are an alderman or an alderwoman in the city, and you're worried that another neighborhood or area is getting all the incentives and all the development, I think it's incumbent on you to try and put together or put forward um, a redevelopment plan Mm -hmm. for those areas where you think that it might be viable. Um, And I think it may also help if my understanding is that there isn't really any formal training for aldermen and alderwomen when they come into office. Mm -hmm. And it may help if there were some kind of training so that if they get approached by a developer or they're out there trying to make good things happen – that they have a better idea of how to do it. And it's probably a pretty good idea not to think of all developers as being bad guys, that they're actually contributing, uh, in many cases, a lot to the city. Yeah, I think um, you know it's one of those stories, and especially when it's an emotional subject for a lot of people, and rightly so, I think that um, when you get to topics like incentives and inequity, um, people want a villain. They want to find someone, and and we have seen some villains in St. Louis history. There's no doubt about that. But in most cases, I think it's a private investor um, trying to put together a deal that makes sense, obviously, that they're going to get a return out of, and it's up to the city to hold their feet to the fire, the developers' feet to the fire, make sure that they're only giving those incentives. And this is something that the mayor and others have said, that they're only giving what's absolutely necessary, not giving away the store and that um, the city is holding them accountable for the results that those developments actually produce. And also look for ways to help those neighborhoods that need it. Absolutely. No question about it. Jack Rohn, thank you. Very interesting subject uh, and one that's not going to go away. But thank you for all the work you've done on it. It's most illuminating. Thanks. Great to be here. Jack Rohn. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU.